today on 2C Fans. Uh, we know there's no magic bullet, no one compound we can go out and spray and the red tide will go away, but what we're doing is investigating a whole series of compounds. We're kind of putting together a toolbox mm -hmm. of compounds and techniques that may impact red tide, or we know and test will impact red tide, and evaluate the circumstances under which we should best use them, too. Hello and welcome to 2C Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science, conservation, and education here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. I'm Haley Rutger. And I'm Emil Flugnoid. You've already used that one. Oh, sorry. I am Joe Nicholson. You've used that one too, but I think that's your real name. That is my oh, real good. name. Oh, good. Good. Okay. So we've got a wonderful guest here that we're real excited to have. Um, can you tell us your name and title, please? Good morning. My name is Cindy Heil, and I am a senior scientist here and director of the Red Tide Institute. So we're here to talk about the toxic and sometimes non-toxic things that we call phytoplankton. Um, what are phytoplankton in general? In general, phytoplankton are marine plants, wow. essentially. But they're very, very small. They're the microscopic plants that you can't see but you need to be aware of because they're very important. About 50% of the air you're breathing right now, you can thank a phytoplankton for. Thank you, phytoplankton. I did know that. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's, that's pretty important. Everybody thinks of trees, and we don't think of those microscopic yeah, plant-like cells. The thing was always trying to save the rainforest when they should have been saving the ocean. Well, they should have been saving the plankton. Yeah. Saving them both, man. They're not at war. <laughs> so how did you end up studying phytoplankton here at Moat? Well, I've worked with Moat for a long time. Uh, over the course of a very long career, I've got a degree from the University of South Florida Marine Science, and I led the Red Tide Group at Fish and Wildlife, and I was actually a scientist up in Maine, and, and I got the offer to come down here and work again with Karenia, the Red Tide Organism, and I kind of jumped at the chance. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible offer. Um, it's a hugely interesting bug to work with, but it's also hugely relevant to society in South Florida with all the impacts and this job gives me a chance to actually mitigate some of those impacts, possibly. Now, we'll get to talk about those impacts on society in a little bit, right? Yeah, so we just got to establish red tide is a, it's a bloom of a type of phytoplankton, what, like you said, called Karenia brevis. Um, if you live here in southwest Florida, you probably know that all too well. Yes. It is one of the, um, uh, one of the phytoplankton that produces toxins and uh, it's probably not the majority of phytoplankton that are toxic, right? Just a minority of them? No, it's a minority. There's, it depends whether you're talking to a taxonomist or not. There's anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 species in the ocean, but only about 300 of them, 300 form blooms, mm -hmm. which is when one, one species dominates and probably 100 of those are toxic. So Really? There's that many that are toxic? Oh, yeah. It's a global phenomenon. Wherever you go, there's going to be a local red tide. So we're not just lucky here in Florida. <laughs> well, we are particularly lucky. We have some of the worst in the world here. Yeah, we and have an, a, a native species, which is Karenia, that has been historically documented along our coast, making these blooms that cause fish kills. They, call, cause, uh, they can kill or sicken the other wildlife. They make us cough on the beach because their toxins get in the air. So, so yeah, uh, we're pretty, uh, quote, lucky. <laughs> Actually, it's not just uh, Florida red tide. Florida has, of those 100 species, about 70. Uh, oh, my not, goodness. Don't necessarily bloom here, but they've been found here. They've been really? Found. So, yeah, Florida's sort of red tide central. Huh. 
Now, are these <laughs> these are not just marine? These are freshwater? Um, freshwater, well? too. Yeah, okay. we've been having, Lake Okeechobee's been having freshwater cyanobacteria blooms mm-hmm. the last 10 years or so. People are probably really aware of the green slime. Yes, If you yes. drive by an apartment uh, pool or a pond, yeah. uh, sometimes they're green. Yep. That's what we're talking about. That is, oh, and those yeah. are toxic? Well, they can or they can't be. Some of the species can, can adjust their toxicity. So oh. some are and some aren't. Wow. Yeah, that's the one I have a hard time getting my head around is when it's a blue-green algae or a cyanobacteria, what it, what is the harm it's doing? It varies so much, or the level of impact can vary so much. <laughs> well, it does, and we don't know a lot about uh, the harms that they cause for drinking water, which is the big issue with yeah. freshwater halves or harmful algae blooms or red tides. Mm-hmm. We know a lot about um, aerosols. We know a lot about red tide aerosols. We don't necessarily know a lot about uh, cyanobacterial aerosols. Yeah, so these wow. are everything's still a very active area of research. And here we just so happen to specialize in that Karenia brevis red tide. Um, but you bring a really cool like ecological perspective that, that also goes beyond that. So I do want to focus for a minute on the, the Florida red tide. So we had this really bad bloom in the Gulf of Mexico from, and some of it reached around the east coast of Florida. Um, and the bloom was like late 2017 to early 2019. So, you know, you're a scientist, you weren't here at Moat that whole time, but um, in fact, you came kind of toward the end of it. So like, you were probably watching this from afar in Maine going, oh boy, <laughs> what's interesting about that to you? Well, my criteria is with my mother asked me about it. She yeah. asked me about it. So, yeah, exactly. I, you know, it made the news everywhere, not just Florida. Uh huh. People who don't know anything about maybe algae at all. Like my, my mom was asking <coughs> me too. So like, knowing this went on like what were you thinking as a scientist seeing like this this lengthy bloom well why was it so intense why was this an anomalous year yeah was it natural was it man-made uh what were the factors that contributed it to it and what were the factors that ended it yeah oh yeah it's it's an interesting phenomena because we know they've been around forever Mm -hmm. so against that background they've been naturally occurring forever the last century Florida changed, mm-hmm. but we still got red tides. Mm-hmm. We developed the Everglades. People moved to southeast Florida. Uh, we developed certainly the uh, land adjacent to the water. Mm-hmm. Nutrient inputs developed. Florida was mined, but we still got red tides. Mm-hmm. And in the 21st century, I think we've seen global changes with climate change, yeah. but we're still getting red tides. So one of the, the major science questions right now are what are climate change effects on red tide as well as local Local nutrient inputs and sources, how do they affect it? Well, yeah. and, and the last one we had wasn't like the longest bloom we've had. No, it was technically 17 months, so it was either the third or the fourth longest. Yeah, because um, I, I remember us having longer ones. Yeah, 05 was bad. I think we tied 05. Yeah. Ni- uh, 94, 95, that went on for about two long, and a half years. Yeah, that was a long one. And, and the, the, the records ri- have gotten so much better over time that there might have been long ones that we didn't even document early in our history, right? Well, if you go by fish kills, the one, there's one in the late 40s where they actually described Karenia, recognized it as the cause and described it. Oh, yeah. And hmm. the, there's reports of fish kills that stretch from Key West all the way to Naples. <sighs> wow. Yeah. That's, that sucks. <laughs> that's a, yeah, no, that's a lot it of does. Dead fish. But on the bright side, the system always seems to recover. Yeah. Well, in some, it's, I've heard it referred to as kind of like um, a forest fire. Yeah, because we really don't know. It, it survives here, but it's not a very good competitor. It doesn't grow very fast, which may be why it has toxins. Um, but we don't know why mm-hmm. it's here. 
and and we're starting to get gl- glimmerings of why it succeeds, why it's adapted to do that. But the role it plays, we don't know. I mean, the, the eastern Gulf of Mexico is incredibly productive for fisheries. Mm. And if you look, you need a food chain for that. So possibly these blooms, you know, are producing carbon. Yeah. It's working its way up the food chain. Could mm. be. Or as you said, it may be like a forest fire every... It's resetting you know, the ecosystem. It's resetting every, the ecosystem yeah. every five or ten years. I yeah. mean, we get them every year, but they can vary from two months to two and a half years. Yes. And we get, yeah, we get some really long. I, you know, I've heard before that we don't always, you know, see a real long one right after another really long one. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I don't know. Uh, no. No. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. You hope for a short one after a long one. You do. But hope we'll for see. A short it's one my after wishful thinking. One. Especially all the restaurants and hotels. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, with this, uh, on the heels of this bloom, um, we were lucky to get you to come here and work with this Red Tide Institute. So could you tell us like what that's about, what the mission is and all that? Well, the Institute was founded uh, late last year mm-hmm. with a very generous donation from the Economist Foundation. Mm-hmm. And essentially the goal is to investigate the various compounds that mitigate, potentially mitigate red tide. And uh, we know there's no magic bullet, no one compound we can go out and spray and the red tide will go away. But... What we're doing is investigating a whole series of compounds. We're kind of putting together a toolbox mm-hmm. of compounds and techniques that may impact red tide, or we know and test will impact red tide, and evaluate the circumstances under which we should best use them, too. I've heard it. I've heard people say jokingly that you could just pour bleach on red tide and it'll kill it, but it'll kill a lot of other it'll things. It'll kill everything, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's how we kill it in the lab. And believe yeah, it or not, somebody bleach. actually... Patented red tide, or patented bleach to kill red tide. Wow! And that's, Although I think uh, they withdrew the patent. So the the big point we're trying to make is that we actually want to do no additional harm beyond what the red tide's doing. So we're not going to throw bleach in the water. No, no, not bleach in the water. Um, what we're doing is kind of essentially looking at the science of this. We'll take a compound and we test it in the lab. Yeah. And it's not just does it kill cells. We used to joke that you look at a culture cross-eyed and the cells died. It's that <laughs> sensitive. But it has to kill the cells, but it also has to eliminate <clears throat> excuse me, eliminate the toxins. Yeah. And that is the kicker. Not a lot of things will eliminate the to- brevitoxin. It's a very complex molecule with a lot of rings. And there's more than one brevitoxin. Yeah, it? yeah. There's a well, at least a dozen now. I think there's some, uh, probably more than a dozen. That's a lot. Well, to deal yeah, with. And, and and conversely, <laughs> that's you know when you kill that cell, it releases the toxin, and you know, okay, actually, that's we've what killed the, we've killed the red tide, but you've just released all the poison. That's what happened with the earliest mitigation effort, which was in the 50s. Mm. Uh, Believe it or not, the state and the federal. Well, the folklore is that they got Karenia growing in the lab very early in Aquaria. And somebody threw some pennies in, and the cultures died. So little light bulbs went off and said, copper. Yeah. Copper will kill it. Copper's an algicide. So huh. there's a whole series of experiments done where they literally crop dusted and uh, dumped behind boats tons of copper sulfate into a bloom. And as you said, it, it did kill the cells. But the problem is the cells released the toxins. It made it much more toxic. And yeah. two weeks later, the tides just brought more red tide cells back in. So. And here you got all that poison and more red tide. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that was that was the first rule of mitigation is do no further harm. Mm-hmm. Yes, just like a MD. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we test things in the lab. And literally about 85% of the compounds we're testing flunk. 
so we don't deal with them anymore. And if they work in the lab, then we move up to mesocosms, like big aquaria. And you guys are trying to be, I think you're trying to be pretty comprehensive. I mean, I remember you talking about doing a big literature search to see what's out there that works maybe with other algae or has been suggested maybe and hasn't been tested fully. <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's all sorts of freshwater algicides for sano mm. bacteria. We have a lot of companies knocking on the door with their own particular pet compound. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in the literature. There's, oh, believe it or not, macroalgae produce compounds that are deterrents to, to phytoplankton. Seaweed. Yeah, yeah. macroalgae, seaweed. So, so there's a whole variety. I think we have a working list of about 50 compounds we're testing right now. That's a, that's a lot. And and one of those is, is a clay type of spray, yeah, clay is, isn't it? Clay is used um, uh, in the Far East extensively for fish aquaculture. Um, it's been tested here at Moat, um, and we're, we're still testing it. And that involves not just adding the clay, seeing what happens to the cells, but seeing what the clay essentially sticks to the cells and the toxins and then takes them to the bottom. Drags it to the bottom, yeah. Yeah, so your first question is, what's it doing to the bottom? So we're working with benthic scientists here to look at the effects on the bottom. If you're in a canal where everything's dead, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. But no sure. further harm. Yeah. If yeah. you're in Sarasota Bay, it does. Does that affect nutrient cycling? Yeah. Does it affect metal cycling? There's a whole. How, how does it affect other algae in the yeah. system? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I should say that like uh, we're we've been working with Woods Hole, who's <coughs> le leading clay work, and um, there was a past clay that was tested. I think it, it was decided not to use it in this environment. It wasn't quite the right fit. So now it's a different kind. You guys are working on so. Like, all the things that are available to you, I guess, are continually evolving and new options are coming up. Yeah, they're improving and we're retesting. And, yeah. and actually, we work with Woods Hole on testing testing clay in our mesocosms. We, and we're actually have permits in place for an in situ test, which is in the water. Yeah. But with no red tide, we can't do anything. Yeah, so. exactly. So, hey, Joe, do you know what a mesocosm is? <laughs> uh, it's a type of soup you get with your uh, Chinese food. <laughs> Good try. Miso? I think that might be Japanese. Uh, Am I showing my lack of knowledge? Probably. All right. Japanese. That's, that's uh, needless to say, that's wrong. Yes. <laughs> uh, so could you tell us, Cindy, what, what is a mesocosm? Sorry, it's a science jargon. Yeah. <laughs> it's essentially a big aquaria. Mm -hmm. And they can be anywhere from... Oh, the size of a 20-gallon 20, 20 bucket to, I've worked with 5,000-liter mesocosms, which are like, oh, I, well, my math. Can't do the math in my <laughs> head, but over 1,000 gallons. Are they open? Are they usually outside? They're or? usually outside, and they're usually open to the air. And yeah. here at Moat, we have a variety that are plumbed to the bay, so we can pull in natural either natural plankton populations and work with them or red tide if it's present and work with it. Yeah, that's pretty important. And it contains it so that we're not actually working out in the middle of the bay where we have a population contained, so we're not introducing anything either. It's your kind of step between the lab and the field. It's You're not fully um, impacting the ocean, but you're also not constrained to what's happening in the lab, I guess. Yeah, you're right. And then if it's successful in a mesocosm, yeah. and successful is not just killing cells and the toxins, it's you know, no more... See adverse effects, yeah. then we'll get the correct permits, and that's a complicated process to test something in the water itself. Yeah, you have to be very rigorous and careful about that stuff. And, um, that, you know, I was going to ask you to sort of help us put, you know, the idea of mitigation and control into context. You, like you say, it's, nothing's going to be a magic bullet. It's kind of a toolbox. And it's not the only red tide science we do at Moat. It can't be. So, like, where does it fit into the world of studying other things like nutrients and uh, physical oceanography and that kind of stuff. Well, nutrient control actually can fall under mitigation. Yeah. That's a 
long-term strategy. If you reduce the nutrient inputs to a system, theoretically, you reduce the phytoplankton in that system. Mm -hmm. And when we start talking about the nutrients, we're talking about everything from man-made to natural. Yeah, we've looked at that with Karenio. We had a big, big, huge project. And part of it is the complexity of these blooms. They're just so complicated. You need the physicists, you need the biologists, you need the chemists, you need the modelists. Well, we haven't figured out how to use the geologists yet. <laughs> they're Modelers. Just, they're waiting for you. They're waiting. Modelers. Oh, yeah. No, no. The, but it's, a, it's you need all input from all of these to figure out these questions. Nutrients have been one of those. Because yeah. with the bloom starting offshore and then moving inshore and moving around so much, there's a whole variety of offshore sources and nearshore sources and identifying those sources, the nutrient sources, and then quantifying them, how much is coming in from each. Yeah. yeah. Take Took us nine scientists over six years I working together. I not doubt that. That would be a daunting it. task. And I, rem- I remember when we when some of the big results from some of that work were reported, I was here at Moat helping, you, helping report some of it, and we were talking about now we know of at least 12 sources of nitrogen and phosphorus nutrients that Karenia brevis can use. And we're still looking to see if there's more, right? So Yeah, we're up to 13 now. Okay. Wow. So. Hey, hey, you heard it here first. And, uh, and you know, people are looking at coastal and offshore sources and, you know, how it uses those at different times, I guess, right? Well, that's one of the, yeah, the pressing questions is the nearshore sources. And those are ones people focus on because those are the ones oh, they're yeah. aware of. Those are the ones that we might contribute to. as. Yeah, and that's one of the questions. How do we differentiate what we contribute mm. and what's natural? Yeah. Especially in a system that's so heavily modified. Yeah, that's tough. Now, if I was, I'm going to play the role of a a restaurant or hotel owner. Dr. Heil, (laughs) what is Moat doing to help us prevent red tide or get rid of red tide? Well, we're studying ways to help you cope with it right now. We monitor, we assist the state in monitoring red tide. And what that does is tell you where it is and tell you where the potential impacts are going to be. With the beaches condition report, and with the state reports that predict where it's going to go with the winds. So you can tell whether a beach is clear or you can tell whether it's going to be impacted uh, from the data we collect. And then the research we're conducting right now is looking at ways to mitigate it. So we're hopefully coming up with strategies, whether it's your canal, part of Sarasota Bay. I'm also looking at ways to mitigate aerosol production. So if we can alter the production of aerosols, uh, that helps people, for, for instance, a uh, restaurant on the beach who's losing customers, don't want to breathe in the toxins. No, we don't. And, but is there anything I, as a restaurant or hotel owner, can do to help with the, the red tide issue? Uh, support good science. That's one thing. Uh, be aware of good science. Uh, when you have the amount of social media attention, last year that the bloom engendered Mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of bad science out there and a lot of pseudoscience out there Mm -hmm. now should i be writing my congressman or my uh state uh, senator well a lot of people did so so there's uh this past year there's been additional state funds to study mitigation and that's helped tremendously we've made huge advances in clay as a potential techniques, collaboration with Fish and Wildlife here in Florida and with Woods Hole. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also testing a whole variety of other compounds. Before the Institute was founded, this money started the process, and we're continuing it, essentially, with the Institute. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. If you had to pick one hopeful, um, maybe upcoming treatment for red tide, do you have one? Well, we... 
Let's see. We've had three that have passed the first lab test, one that we're just finished a huge mesocosm study on that okay. looked promising. So so probably in a couple of months, ask me that question again, a and I might months, have huh? some very good news. Okay. All right. So we're seeing some progress. That's exciting. Um, so I did want to ask, I mean, we talk about these things, and people always ask why it takes so much time and effort to study red tide. Can you give us a sense of the time and effort people put in just to do monitoring or just to get a research question answered? Well, a bloom, you look and see a bloom, and you see dead fish in the aerosols. You don't realize this is a really complex Yeah biological, chemical, oceanographic phenomena that's yeah. going on. Oh, yeah. And it's a single-celled plant, but it's moved around by the currents. Mm -hmm. So we have to know the physical oceanography, what drives the currents. It's toxic, so we have to know the toxin chemistry. Yeah. Uh, the cells actually, believe it or not, swim. They're swimming plants. That's the flat flagellum. The flagellum. Yeah, the two flagellum, but it can swim a foot an hour. So it can be throughout the water column. That makes monitoring difficult. The fact that these blooms start offshore yeah. and then move inshore, well, when they start offshore, they're at depth and low concentration. So we can't get them with satellites. It's anywhere from Naples to Tarpon. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a needle in a haystack trying to monitor these sometimes. Do they go up and down in the water column day and night? Like, do they go down they do. at night and up in the morning? Well, and, uh... they're phototactic, which means they go toward light. So mm -hmm. they'll go up during the day. They need to photosynthesize. Mm -hmm. It's a little quirky. They can go down, but they don't like to very often. They just kind of disperse at night. Oh. But it gets tricky because they also are uh, geotactic, which means they go against gravity. Hmm. So, And they have an internal rhythm that, that means they'll go up day after day after These day. These are some funky cells. Well, I, <laughs> you just tapped into my master's thesis topic. So, Yeah, they are. They're really fascinating, and they don't wow. always do what you think they're going to do. Wow. So your master's thesis was on the motion that, that the cell makes itself or something like that? I think well, it was called the funky cell movement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, do the funky cell dance. <laughs> well, basically, I would sit on a bloom offshore and take casts. CTD cast, conductivity, temperature, depth with an instrument. Yeah. Going up and down, taking water samples and counting it every two hours for about two weeks. <laughs> figuring out what they were doing and then doing the same thing in the lab. That's wow. a, lot, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But that a was lot, a heck of a lot of work. A lot of good knowledge has come from it. Um, I wanted to also highlight, just because it came up so much in the past, um, past year with the past bloom, that your research goes beyond right now mitigation. It goes into the ecology of red tide. You're still looking at nutrients. I know you're looking at whether, you know, uh, cyanobacteria could, along the coast could actually contribute any nutrients to red tide, that kind of thing. So I wanted to give a plug for the fact that the sort of sheer broadness of your research. Well, yeah, it's, I'm interested in the whole phenomena. Yeah. Basically, right now, especially after last year, we're focused on what basically causes these big blooms. What is so different about last year versus prior years? Yeah. And is it related uh, to climate change? Mm -hmm. That's an underlying, we don't know. We don't know much of anything about red tides, what happens to red tide with climate change. One of the observation is the last two very severe blooms coincided with really bad hurricane years. Mm. 05, 06, and the last year. So like as a two. scientist, you might ask about temperature, you might ask about sediment getting stirred up maybe or something? Or runoff, or rainfall runoff. too, because yeah. these storms, with climate change they're predicting, we don't necessarily see more hurricanes, but they're gonna be more severe. Yeah. So is the severity of the hurricane dumping more water, pumping more nutrients into the system? Or is it changing the physics of the system? You know, why? It, 
or if it even does contribute to it. Yeah. So, and then what ends a bloom too? It's amazing. We've been focusing <laughs> on what causes a bloom, yeah. what happens to the bloom near shore, but um, yeah, we want to know what ends a bloom. Yeah. Is it physics? Last year was physics. Essentially, we had winds blowing from the north, and when winds blow, they move water to the right. So blowing from the north moved the coastal bloom offshore, mm. essentially. And the temperature dropped as well. No, temperature didn't have much to do with no? it. They overwinter. Yeah, mm. they're adaptable. As long as you don't shock them, like overnight with a 10-degree change, they're pretty adaptable. And the huh. water just doesn't change as fast as the air. It retains no, the, the water. Heat. Yeah, the water's buffered. Yeah. So we, kn- we know that... Uh, the winds kind of blew it offshore for, and it was sustained winds for yeah. a long period. But that being said, other blooms, it can be bacteria, it can be viruses, it, it can be running out of nutrients. Just like a, you don't fertilize your lawn and it dies, if you don't fertilize a bloom, it dies too. Hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't it be delightful if we found a bacterium that dealt with red tide and killed it and nothing else? <laughs> well, we're especially cautious about introducing biological mitigation yeah. techniques. So. That's true. So I shouldn't be doing that work. I would become like a mad scientist. You already <laughs> are a mad scientist. <laughs> you can't trust me with that. We trust Cindy with it. Well, we do have a parasite for Karenia, too. That's something, yeah, we've heard that's been looked at and probably will continue to mm-hmm. be, right? Yep. So um, before we finish up today, is there anything else that you want the public to understand better or any calls to action you want them to take with red tide? Well, obey the fertilizer laws for one thing. That's <laughs> yeah. management practices yeah. and don't fertilize your lawn when you don't need to yes. or with too much. That does contribute, believe it or not. Every little bit counts um, oh, yeah. with regarding nutrients. But that being said, um, I, I do think we should reduce nutrients. That's a question I get asked a lot. Mm-hmm. If we reduce nutrients inputs, is that going to end red tide? And it, that's the thing. It's not going to end red tide, but it's going to improve water quality. Yes. And make your coastal environment a whole lot better. So I tell people, yes, it's a good thing to do just for water quality basis alone, but don't don't pin red tide on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And it might, you know, who knows if it'll have an effect on reducing its um, uh, intensity or something, but may not ever make it fully go away, which is... Well, it was here long before yeah. people were, so I don't think it's going away. It's a question of how we manage it yeah. and whether we can mitigate it. Yes. And then uh, I, I also was told um, by one of my colleagues here that you're going to be at a water quality summit. I just heard this at Sarasota County, right? Yes, in and a couple of weeks. Yeah, I June. heard it was uh, Wednesday, June 5th, right? Yes. It's at, what, Riverview, I think, right? Uh, Where is it being held? Oh, Joe, I don't remember. I think it's at Riverview <laughs> High School's just, auditorium. Yes, yes, it is. It's, yes, it is. I'm glad you know that. Good yes, job. Good Riverview. job. And look it up on Sarasota County's website because Dr. Howell will be there and other people focused on water quality. So I think it's going to be a really good event. And is like, is there a real goofy question you've ever been like? What's the goofiest question you've ever been asked goofiest about red tide? Is like, oh, is, can you cook with red tide? Did it affect my hearing? Uh. I think that was the goofiest. <laughs> red tide. Yeah, so I, I lost half my hearing after the last red tide. I know it was red tide. It had to I'm be like, red tide. Yeah. I did actually talk to the to uh, the researchers who do human health, and they said we don't think so. Nobody's ever reported that. Okay. No loss so. of hearing through red tide. Okay. I've been living here my whole life. I my mood here. was a little darker, I'll, I'll have to tell you, <laughs> while red tide was here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I've sat on enough wombs in my life to, to perfectly understand that. Okay. Oh, yeah. We work on the coast, so we experience it just as much as anybody. Well, think of the poor researchers out there on a boat. I 
Oh, <laughs> stuck in the middle of it, breathing I it in. I put a drogue out oh. in the water to track it, and we followed that drogue for two weeks, and oh we were just sitting on goodness. a red tide. Mm-hmm. I'd be when wearing a mask, being angry the whole time. When you're in your 30s, you do things like that. <laughs> then you grow up and yeah. you do crazy things. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's been very enlightening for me. I, you know, I've learned some things here. Oh, yeah. We learned well, thank a lot. you for hosting me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll see you all in about two weeks for uh, another episode of 2C Fans at Moe.